Today on Cross Defense, we learn from Martin Kimnitz about the eight varieties of tradition. We speak with Reverend Marcus Williams about three pieces of advice he has for Lutherans who may be considering converting to Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, plus Vice President Kamala Harris. She's mad at President Trump for saving babies. It's all coming up right now on Cross Defense. Commenting on the January 13th, 2023 episode, Blessing Homosexual Couples, the Pope Says It's Okay, Kevin Bolton, 9315, took the Roman Catholic position and made an argument against Sola Scriptura, writing that St. Paul says we have scripture and tradition to guide our understanding. When I followed up, explaining that the tradition we follow is apostolic and that where councils and popes err, we do not follow, that where man's traditions are in keeping with scripture all is well, well, Kevin Bolton, 9315, said, so there you have it. Jesus delegates. You reject the delegates. Not you personally, but your ilk. No, me personally. I reject the delegates. Not the delegates that Jesus, yeah, anyway. You can't have it both ways, he says. Jesus chose those on whom he gave authority. You reject that authority. Not my problem, but certainly a problem for those who decide to reject that authority. And as I have said, Kevin Bolton is speaking, just look where that rejection leads. Hundreds of denominations, all claiming to be right. Now I ask again, does this confusion come from God or is there another source of confusion? So, as is our custom, we'll get to my reply to Mr. Kevin Bolton, 9315, later in the show. Pay attention, my friends, to how Reverend Marcus William addresses this very type of logic as we get into today's interview. Is Luther to be blamed for heresies today? Well, only if you're willing to condemn Athanasius when you're denouncing Arius, yeah? All right, but first, we mustn't put the cart before the horse, as they say. Welcome to Cross Defense, my friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of it with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in the great Ferndale, California, where, get this, get this, we actually make sure all of our members know the small catechism and that they're familiar with the Book of Concord and our hymnal. In fact, we give each new household one of each. It's true, that is, Book of Concord and the hymnal, every member gets a small catechism. And they get to know what's inside of them by actually using them. True story, true story. If during the course of the show, you want to send in your comments, your questions, your bits of biblical brilliance, because I know you got them, you can do so by going to Tyrell Bramwell dot com slash contact that's t-y-r-e-l-b-r-a-m-w-e-l-l dot com slash contact i'd love to hear from you and you can also find me on youtube and instagram at tyrell bramwell just my name okay so as i just said i have another interview for you today lined up for you today this time we're talking with reverend marcus williams of blessed sacrament lutheran church out in hayden idaho he published a video not that long ago, well, maybe it was a little while ago now, but I came across this video not too long ago, and I thought it would be a very good blessing to share the main point of it with you as well. We've linked the video in the show notes, so you can definitely take a look at the entire thing. A lot of it will be overlap, but I definitely encourage you to take a look at that because he does go into a few other different nuances in that video than what we're going to get to today. The video is called Confessional Lutherans Considering Rome or the East advice for your consideration. Do you remember 
a couple weeks ago, I encourage Roman Catholic listeners, if there are any out there, to abandon the SS Vatican and swim over to the confessional Lutheran ship. Well, there are some Lutherans, we know, who think it would be good to leave behind the gospel and adopt the man-made traditions of Rome or Constantinople. And Reverend Williams, well, he's here to help them reconsider. After the interview, we will get to my answer to Kevin Bolton, 9315, and we'll round out the show with a canceled Christian comment segment. So stick around. Let's get into the interview. Thank you for joining me today to talk about something I saw on your YouTube channel, actually. I, was, I came across a video, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes below, of you giving three points why Lutherans shouldn't abandon ship and, and go toward uh, Rome or Constantinople. So I'm curious, is there a trend that you know about that maybe the listeners across defense aren't aware of? Is there a trend among Lutherans to become Roman Catholic or to become Eastern Orthodox? Is that, is that something that is ongoing and, and a problem that we're, we're facing in the church? Um, I mean, I don't have like official statistics, let's say. So I don't have hard numbers that I could point to, uh, only anecdotes, but enough anecdotes create a statistic, I guess. Sure. And so when you start to see these murmurings, not just in your own local, uh, circumstance, but in parishes across the country and amongst other Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors, um, and concerns also raised by even professors at the seminary. I remember one professor at the seminary a number of years ago uh, doing kind of an informal uh, poll of people asking, do you know anybody who has converted out of Lutheranism uh, and into Eastern Orthodoxy? And I think particular attention was given to clergymen who have done this. And there was, as I recall, quite a number of uh, names listed there. Um, probably the most famous one in recent history, not our memory, I suppose, but is Yaroslav Pelikan. And, you know, obviously Yaroslav Pelikan was no dummy sure. <laughs> in terms of his commitment to the Lutheran confession. I mean, he translates many of the works of Luther in the American edition of Luther's works, um, but it trickles all the way down then from the academic um, and the professional theologian uh, to the laity. And um, I know of a number of resources that have come out recently um, that were written because of this particular thing. I think okay. in particular, it seems to me more toward Eastern Orthodoxy than Roman Catholicism. But I think that each have <clears throat> a particular kind of allure for disillusioned uh, Lutherans. Okay. So what in the video you give the three points are these three points, and, and we'll talk about them, I'll let you tell the audience what they are exactly, but are these three points kind of broad, general um, reasons not to, or are they kind of specific toward members in your congregation that you might know or, or conversations you've had? Um, well, actually, let's just start with what are the three points, and how, how about how did you get them? Where do they come from? Kind of break down your thought process of why you gave this advice that you gave. So, what is the advice, and then why did you give it? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of my reflections in regard to that advice was just stuff that I was coming across on online, right? Okay. Various social media 
platforms, whether it was YouTube or Discord or whatever, sure. and particularly listening to the kind of arguments that uh, Orthodox and Roman Catholic um, apologists were making uh, over against what they want to term Protestantism more generally considered. <clears throat> and so, uh, and then the arguments that would follow from that lumped in various figures from the time of the Reformation, you know, and allied together, let's say, people we know would not have allowed themselves to be uh, allied together uh, historically. You know, you're not you're not going to get away at least 500 years ago with uh, convincing Luther that he has something in common with Zwingli, for example. Mm -hmm. And so um, the categories that I sort of set forth were more general. Uh, I think in the video, maybe in the description, I said something like, this is by no, mean comp by no means comprehensive, but it's right. just kind of a thing for people to think about uh, in order to pump the brakes a little bit, because I think they, they start to hear some of these arguments and then it's almost like a bobsled, right? And I think that a lot of the arguments online are not really dealing with uh, our historic confession. So the first piece of advice I gave was to avoid false frames. And this piece of advice has to do with the kind of lumping together all non-Orthodox Christians into one category as if they're the same, or lumping all non-Roman Catholic Christians you know, the Orthodox accepting into one, you know, lump as if they were all the same, and then arguing against this kind of falsely constructed uh, grouping of people as though they're a monolith. And so the Lutherans sitting there listening, you know, that, oh, yeah, it's terrible to like, hate the sacraments, and it's terrible to just like, think you can do whatever you want or whatever. And then they kind of like become uh, convinced that this also applies to Lutheranism, historically speaking. And there might be various reasons for that. Um, but my advice in regard to avoiding false frames is just, you know, demanding that the people that you're listening to actually deal with your positions. And the chance that you find yourself agreeing with a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox and the apologetic that they're making against Protestantism uh, more broadly considered, it probably has to do with the fact that you're a confessional Lutheran. Um, <laughs> Because yeah. we share many of those critiques, you know. Yeah, and that's probably why the, the very beginning kernel of why a Lutheran might be considering, if he's going to move to a different church, the Lutheran who's considering Rome or going to the East is a confessional Lutheran by and large, probably. Otherwise, right. listeners of the show, perhaps, and probably not many of them, but um, they, they consider Lutheran to be part of the, the broader Protestant, and they, they would be like, why would a Lutheran want to go to, to Rome? They, I, I want to be like, Doug Wilson, or I want to be like uh, John MacArthur. I, I want to go that way. Some, right. so some people might be thinking, wow, this is completely different. I love that you did that. In fact, it was so timely that I watched your video because we critiqued um, the uh, the fiducia supplicans from the Pope. And and I put a clip of that out on YouTube, just a, just a clip of it using two Roman Catholic ap apologists on YouTube, um, Brian Holdsworth and, and Trent Horn. And their critique of the document themselves, so from a Roman Catholic, but the comments that blew up on my YouTube uh, post were were doing exactly what you said, lumping me as a Lutheran with all Protestantism. The argument right. was us versus all of Protestantism, and I, and I, you know they they want to go with Luther and they they want to point out the ELCA and all the you know the the Sparkle Creeds and all this guy, and I'm like, yeah, I agree, Th those things are horrible. <laughs> I'm not with them either. 
Um, but that doesn't mean I'm with you either. So that was extremely well timed for me to hear the way you framed that avoid false frames. Super helpful. What's the, what's the next couple, um, pieces of advice? Well, you give here? Maybe another thing under this heading, um, yeah. is the, you know, like what you'll see also online and some Lutherans do this and I guess maybe I'm ignorant, but <laughs> I do, it kind of drives me bonkers when, uh, even Lutherans are kind of lumping us together into some other narrower category, like a classical Protestant or a magisterial Protestant. I mean, mm. it's, I think it's uncalled for to just lump us in together with the term Protestant without any kind of qualification, because of course, words have meaning in their time. And so it might very well be true that we could have, you know, taken up the mantle of Protestantism 500 years ago, because after all, that's who started the name, let's say, was a bunch of Lutheran princes protesting against uh, the Roman church. Um, but now it has more of, a, you know, it has more to do with sacramentarianism in the 21st century, Protestantism is, that that is, because most people who think of themselves as Protestants think of themselves as decidedly not Catholic. And one of the things that they argue against is sacramental grace or the forgiveness of sins being given through baptism and the Holy Communion. And it's like, well, we're not on that train at all. But I would also appeal and say we're not in like a narrower category either of magisterial Protestants. Um, there really isn't. I mean, I don't want to uh, overstrain how much disagreement there was in the 16th century between these various uh, reforming groups. But if you read Luther's large catechism, for example, he's being accused of denying sola fide because of his position on baptismal regeneration. So we don't even have agreement necessarily on the solas of the reformation, right? You can mouth, I believe this thing, and we can have the same syllables and so forth, but the meanings are drastically different. So for Luther, sola fide isn't undermined by baptismal regeneration. He says that the sacraments demand faith um, the whole point of sola fide is not faith all by its lonesome, but faith is the only receiving organ uh, to which God can give his promise. And so he gives that promise in external means like baptism and the Holy Communion. So whether or not we have those, you know, our sacramental theology in common with some of these other groups that might be more sane, let's say, than Zwingli, um, nevertheless, there are these distinctions that avail historically. And I just don't think we do ourselves any favors by, you know, lumping ourselves into this, this kind of watered down category, because it causes us to sort of look away from the Book of Concord. Everywhere I look, whether it's in the preface to the Book of Concord, or in the Augsburg Confession, or in the preface to the formula or the conclusion to the formula, these reformers are saying, we're taking this confession with us to the judgment seat of Christ, you know, so uh, and what they condemn in the Formula of Concord or in the Augsburg Confession, we likewise also condemn. And so I, it's like for nicety's sake, we want to say, well, we're all, you know, we're, we're kind of doing the same thing. But I mean, when, once you start to delve beneath the surface, it becomes pretty plain fairly quickly that what we're doing is not, you know, the same kind of project that the Anglicans are doing or the Calvinists are doing or the Sacramentarians certainly are doing. Um, and so the appeal there, you know, against the false frame is just lean into your own confession of faith. You yeah, know, and it's much easier to defend what you are specifically than this, this false, but also broad swath of potential things you could be. 
right? Right, um, right. If, if you're trying to make an apologetic stance, defend the cross from this, this extreme battlefield of all these variables versus I'm a confessional Lutheran, this is what I hold to, that's much simpler. That's much easier to do because you right, know it. Right. And if you don't know it, well, you can know it by reading the book of Concord and taking it to Scripture. So how about the right. next one? Avoid ecclesiastical impressionism. Unpack that yeah, so this. Yeah, this, this phrase was um, uh, introduced to me by a friend of mine, Joshua Shooping, who wrote a book um, called Disillusioned. Um, Joshua Shooping was an Orthodox priest who left the priesthood in the Orthodox Church. And one of the things he talks about at the beginning of that book, uh, really in an appeal to those who are thinking about converting to the Eastern Orthodox Church, is to avoid Impressionism. And the Impressionism is the kind of orthodoxy that they're introduced to in their local parish, which might be to one degree or another watered down compared to the official canonical positions of the Orthodox Church. Um, and one of the you know striking examples that he uses is, you know, on the Sunday of Orthodoxy in the Orthodox ecclesiastical calendar, very many Orthodox parishes still uh, announce anathemas against all the heretics outside the Orthodox Church, among whom are Martin Luther and co. <laughs> so they're anathematized on the, the Sunday of Orthodoxy. And so um, Joshua Shooping's point in this book is to say, very many people are presented with this kind of palatable form of Orthodoxy in their local congregation, and they make it seem as though Orthodoxy is not as exclusivistic as it actually is. Um, and so you avoid the impressionism of Hey, I you know I can be Orthodox and still think that my grandma, who's a Baptist, isn't going to go to hell. But canonically speaking, that is the position of the Orthodox Church. If you're outside the church, you're in some in some cases, and I think the priests who talk this way are being more honest with their own positions. They don't even think they can call you a Christian in actual fact. They think they can call you a Christian by convent con convention, right? Okay. Like I can nominally and for politeness' sake say, oh yeah, you're a Christian, but Really, I don't think that you're a Christian because they have a fairly stringent border, let's say, around um, what constitutes the church. And the Roman church had this probably up to Vatican II in a stricter sense than they do now. You know, we're no longer anathematized. We're just separated brethren, but at least we're still brethren, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that kind of impressionism, he, he, he's just bidding people to deal with the canonical positions of the Orthodox Church, instead of having an impressionistic idea of what the Orthodox Church is based on what your local priest told you, um, which that's not bad advice anywhere you go, right? Yeah. I don't you'd be impressionistic in the Lutheran Church either, right? I think you should know exactly what it is the Lutheran Confession is and what right and good practice ought to be and so forth. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Do you think most of our Lutherans 
are probably operating with an impressionistic understanding of who they are just in general laity yeah well i mean you, like in our own in our yeah, own in congregation our own circles, do you think that's a problem I, th I think that might be a problem that we have in-house I think I think a lot of people uh, in Lutheran congregations, and this is going to sound really rude. Um, but okay, I don't you're on the right show about, for that. Go ahead. Yeah, and I don't have to worry about congregants and other churches getting mad at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of Lutherans don't. They just they actually just don't even know that the Book of Concord exists. Yeah. You know, there's a. I mean, I I I know you know of Lutherans who have never read the Large Catechism, for example, and yeah. to say that that's a travesty. Um, is an understatement. I mean, I always say to my people, the Book of Concord is your book. It's actually more your book than it is my book. I mean, yeah. the whole the whole premise of the Book of Concord is that the church, that is to say, not just the clergyman, but the body of Christ can know the faith, mm -hmm. and they ought to know it, and yeah. then be equipped, right, to be discerning hearers and so forth. But if you don't even know that a book exists that iterates your own confession, then what exactly is it that you think makes you a Lutheran? If, I mean, hopefully it's at the very minimum, the small catechism, but I have my doubts as to whether or not people who have been confirmed and in the church for 60 years have revisited the catechism. And again, that's that's a fairly sharp observation from a young whippersnapper or whatever, but I, I think, think it's, it's spot on. true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's why I even posed the question. I think we are dealing with this you know, people have an impression in their own mind of what a Lutheran is, and because of our, well, I don't even know how to say this, but um, weaknesses, just to use a general term, we have allowed a culture of, I mean, I could ask a Lutheran in L.A. what makes a Lutheran, and it's going to be completely different from the Lutherans here in Ferndale, um, because yeah. they're not operating from a standard basic confession of faith. They're just operating with what they've been experiencing at their own church and what they think, and never having verified it or, or explored it. Yeah, it's a problem I think we have in the Synod, but anyway. And it, you know, uh, I mean, it could, it could be a problem also amongst clergymen. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, in, in, the, in one of the introductory uh, essays in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, there's a quote from CFW Walther, and he says that every pastor should ensure that every member family of his congregation has a Book of Concord in their house. Yeah. And therefore also he bids the Synod to publish a relatively inexpensive copy of the Book of Concord so that it might be affordable uh, for the member families of our parishes. And so, you know, pastors should should really impress this confession upon their people and, and to show them why it's good, right, to, to inwardly digest this confession uh, and make it their own. And this is something that Charles Croth says in his book, The Conservative Reformation and Its Theology. Every generation of Lutherans must imbibe the confession of the Book of Concord and make it their own confession. It doesn't do you any good to like point at the book on the shelf like a relic and say, well, there it is. And that, you know, it's meant to be in your heart and then coming out of your mouth. Um, so in any case, um, the, other, the other thing maybe, no, sorry, go ahead. Nope. Well, the other thing on the ecclesiastical impressionism, too, is, and this is maybe related to something that Will Whedon said in uh, a two-part presentation he did on why you should remain Lutheran. Uh, he said that it's important to compare a Lutheran ideal to an Orthodox or Roman Catholic ideal. And what he meant by that was, don't take a bad local circumstance that we all know exists, right? There are terrible local circumstances 
of Lutheranism in the Missouri Synod, which is a huge problem. And it's contributing to the problem of people saying, this is unserious and I wanna go find something uh, that at least by appearance is more ancient and more serious uh, and more committed to the Christ that I see not only in the scriptures, but also in the historic church. So he says, don't take your local circumstance um, and then compare it to a local circumstance in an Orthodox church, but compare the ideal to the ideal. And that is to say, compare what, what is the doctrine that is professed by the Lutheran church in comparison to the Roman church, in comparison to the Orthodox church, and then compare those things to what is revealed in the sacred scripture and make your decision accordingly. And if you're in a terrible, I mean, if you're in a terrible situation, you're at a congregation where the pastor tolerates and maybe promotes open communion, uh, or you have women lectors, or you have things going on in your congregation that you think this is just not the way it ought to be. If you're willing to leave your confession to go to some heterodox church that corrupts the gospel that's five minutes away from your house, then you better be willing to get in your car and drive two hours to find a congregation that actually upholds what you know to be a pure confession. I mean, there really is no excuse uh, for being allured by um, these impressionistic things. And I think a lot of it starts out, at least initially, as an external appeal, right? There is a lot of beauty in the Orthodox Church. Right. I mean, and I'm a, an appreciator of ecclesiastical beauty. And frankly, you know, modern Lutherans just suck at this. Um, and we need to be better because beauty is a part of the argument for God's existence. And so our forebears didn't build beautiful churches because that was just like a thing that people thought was kind of neat to do. I mean, there was uh, an intention behind building a beautiful cathedral church or, right. you know, investing your resources to support beauty. But that's obviously not the gospel either. So you shouldn't just go to orthodoxy because it's pretty or they have greater uniformity in their externals. Those things are canonized and can't be done otherwise. And the Orthodox don't know the category of ideophora, which I think is an important category so far as the Christian conscience um, and Christian freedom is concerned, which are categories in the Word of God. So, I mean, um, in any case, I just want to make that mention of that. Yeah, too. that's really good to hear. Thank you for pointing that out. And let's move on to the third category here, the avoid falling prey to oversimplified arguments against the Lutheran position, right? Is that how you put it? Yeah. Yeah, so here, th this is, um, I know that Jordan Cooper has made a video on, like, avoiding the notion that the Lutheran is committed to Luther per se, Luther himself, as, a as opposed to understanding that Lutherans are committed to a confession which is contained in the 1580 Book of Concord. And so the, the point here on oversimplified arguments is you'll hear a lot of Orthodox apologists or Roman Catholic apologists say, I mean, they don't understand Luther at all. It's clear that these guys don't read Luther. They read books about Luther, and then they get their own impressions about what Luther had said or whatever it is about works or faith or reason or what. I mean, it's like the same kind of statements. Oh, Luther said that reason was a you know, a whore. And he said that we should just not you use reason. And he said, good works are filthy and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, they just trot out all of these things from Luther. But even if Luther said all of those things, okay, which I'm skeptical as to the truthfulness of any of these statements from these people who make these kind of arguments. But even if it were the case that Luther and some of his private correspondences, or in some of his works had said any of these things, it's like, so what? That's the answer. That's actually the answer. Because I'm not 
I don't subscribe to everything that Luther ever said, right? Yeah. I mean, Luther said very many things that just frankly aren't appropriate to be in a, you know, a public confession of faith. I mean, he was an individual, right? And it's not like, so they, they accuse us of treating Luther like a new pope. And it's like, no, you're projecting on us. You're, you're trying to make us treat Luther like a new pope by saying, well, Luther said this thing and you're now responsible for it. And it's like, not so. We subscribe to a confession, not to something that Luther said or did. Uh, and so those are the kind of simplified arguments. Well, Luther said this. Can you believe that? Oh, my goodness, I'm scandalized by this thing that Luther said. It's like, um, so what? Luther said some scandalizing thing. I, I mean, I've said a scandalizing thing before. I mean, <laughs> so it's not uh, or, you know, like another simple argument is, oh, Lu you know, Luther added the word, you know, alone um, to Romans three. You know, we're justified by faith. Like, oh, this is like the worst most horrifying thing that you could ever think of. And, um, you know, I said in my video, it's, it, it just betrays a clear misunderstanding of what the formula calls part, the particles like grace alone without works and so forth like this faith alone. That's what it means to be saved by grace. According to St. Paul means to not be saved by works or any inclusion of works. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but that is the <laughs> contextual reading of the passages in which St. Paul talks about justification. So if Luther in his translation puts in a clarifying term, right, then, like, okay, maybe he shouldn't have done that. But it's not like that's part of our confessional subscription in any case. So, like, I'm not going to get hung up on these kind of simplifications of Lutheranism. Or, again, you know, making it sound like Luther is responsible for every problem that has ever belched forth from the 16th century. It's like, yeah. uh, I mean, that, that'd be like, if you're going to make that argument, okay, let's say that you, okay, fine. Luther's responsible for, you know, like the weirdest evangelical church you could possibly think of in the 21st century. That's Luther's fault. Then <laughs> okay. you have to also say, well, you know, the Orthodox church in the fourth century is responsible for Arius. I mean, it doesn't follow that, like, because these people spring up and are contemporaries of a particular person, therefore they are responsible for them. Yep. I'm not going to make Athanasius responsible for Arius or any of the, you know, uh, or any of these early church theologians or pastors or bishops. It's like error comes into the church. The, you know, the Reformation was a boiling point that had been building for centuries. Right? It's not like uh, Luther was the sole originator of it. And then, I mean, he was horrified by all the things he saw, probably more so than his opponents. His opponents actually delighted in all these disparate groups coming up because they used it as an argument to show that the Lutherans were wrong. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so anyway. Wait, they're still doing that today. I mean, that, this is the things right. you're talking about is exactly what I've most recently experienced in this, you know, comment explosion on the, on the, on the clip, all the things you're talking about have been brought up. Somebody posted, they think, you know, thinking they nailed me to the wall. They said that, Oh, Luther was just a, a horny monk who pimped out uh, nuns. It's like, right. One, right. that's false. But two, that if, even if it was true, so what, how does that refute what I'm saying? Right. I mean, right. Right. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be, that would be horrifying and totally disreputable, but it's obviously yeah. not true. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned um, uh, at the beginning, magisterial Protestant, this phrase and classical Protestant for the sake of the audience. Could you please unpack those for us? What do, when they hear those kind of terms, what are we talking about? Well, I think when people use magisterial or classical Protestant, they're designating those groups that came out of the Reformation 
that at least had enough sensibility to formulate confessions, right? So we can agree together that it was good that, you know, that group that eventually became the Anglicans wrote the 39 articles, um, even if they're inferior to the Augsburg Confession. <laughs> and we can agree together, you know, that it's good that some of these reformed groups had their catechisms longer and shorter and so forth. So I think magisterial and classical has to do with just that, that it's a more restrained, uh, a, a, a more restrained version of reformation that over against a kind of radical reformation, which departs in, in such way as to take the ax to the root of the tree, so to speak. And so that's in fact what radical means, radix to the root, right? To just chop the whole thing down. So the magisterial Protestants like Anglicans and Lutherans probably, you know, more so than some of the reformed groups want to continue to think of themselves and set themselves forth to the world as, you know, belonging to the Western Catholic church. Um, those groups who are not in the magisterial Protestant movement, let's say, um, don't really care to associate themselves with Rome or the Western Catholic Church. They think it's corrupt all the way down to the bottom, and it needs to sort of be replanted, as it were. Um, and my concern here, again, to allied ourselves too closely together with these groups that are with us in terms of setting forth a confession is they're setting forth a confession that is not in every way in accord with the Word of God, right? And so when you read the Book of Concord, the Lutheran confessors are saying, these confessions we take with us to the judgment seat of Christ, the Augustana, the Apology, the Catechisms of Luther, the small called articles, um, the, you know, the formula of Concord, both the Epitome and Solid Declaration, the Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope. These things, from our standpoint, are representative of what the sacred scripture actually teaches. And so, again, I, I just don't understand, like, I don't, I don't need to lump myself in together with these other groups and make whatever problems they have that I don't agree with my own kind of problems. Um, I think we can work toward unity, right? You get this sense in the Book of Concord that, I mean, it's called the Book of Concord, for crying out loud. It's not called the Book of Division, you know? So their goal is to try and bring unity. Um, I, was on a, I was on a podcast uh, or on a YouTube stream on the Reformation with some Anglicans, and one of the Anglicans said, you know, it's this lifelong dream of mine to see, you know, the Reformed and the Lutheran come into communion. And I said, you guys have been dreaming that for 500 years. And I said, and there is a way forward. It's for you to acknowledge that the 1580 Book of Concord is the faithful exposition of the Word of God. You know? um, and so I think it's just important for us to not be nasty, but to remain firm and confident in defending our own confession. Um, and I mean, obviously, you have to know it before you can defend it. So. Absolutely. And that goes against the, you know, one sort of trend in the Lutheran world is to water down our Lutheran identity. Right. This is uh, this is kind of how higher things emerge as a, you know, embracing the Lutheran thing. I remember when it first you know hit the scene, it was all about daring to be Lutheran in this. Uh, so what sort of as we kind of round out the, the conversation, um, what sort of boots on the ground? kind of pastoral wisdom can you give to both laity, but also pastors who are listening and how they can embrace the identity that obviously knowing the confessions is going to be first and foremost, you got to know what you believe. But beyond that, what kind of is there any skills, any any um, disciplines where at the beginning of the year, any resolutions we can put into place to 
to live this life better and and to to move forward on this in this regard yeah well i mean i i think okay this is also going to sound kind of dismissive and rude of certain efforts of our publishing house but like you know we put out these kind of you know 20 days through this book emphasizing this theme or whatever and we have to get like creative with all our bible study material and i'm like why don't you just like read the bible um and the lutheran <laughs> confessions you know like it's it it's too simple, you know in, in some, that's too simple yeah right it, it's so it's it's like it's not rocket science i think i think one thing we have to overcome is just that there is this I, I don't know like well you have to first make sure your people are aware that a thing called the book of concord exists okay and then help them to understand why it's important and central to the life of the church. Perhaps a pastor uses his own ordination vows as a as a springboard into making sure that he's going to now set forth portions of the Lutheran confessions to his own people, because he's going to say to them, hey, I promise to teach in accord with these things. And it's probably good for you to know what I promise to teach in accord with. So I don't hoodwink you, you know, um, and in order for you to know that, you actually have to get into the material. But it's intimidating, of course, because many people are not theologians, which is fine. Um, and so they they come with some amount of trepidation because they encounter phrases and words and concepts that they just don't understand. Um, and so I think a pastor can help overcome those things. Maybe he creates another midweek study, which is just you know, a devotion to the Book of Concord. Let's read through this section. Let's just read through the Augsburg Confession, or let's read through the Catechism. Um, something that yeah, you have to sort of test where your people are at. Sure. But then give people some kind of perhaps a reading guide. Um, you know, I, I know that Steadfast Lutherans does this one every Lent. It's a little bit rigorous. I mean, I have to admit, I've started it many years and totally got bucked off the horse because I'm like, I can't read the whole book of Concord in 40 days when I have all these other things to do. <laughs> so, but you could create some kind of a reading schedule where, whereby you're reading a few pages every day and just making steady and slow progress. Sure. Um, so not, not to be intimidated by the book of Concord, just because there are things in it that you don't know, like you got to start somewhere, right. Yep. But to take confidence in the fact that the book of Concord really is about the consolation of the Christian conscience. I mean, this is the primary concern in the 16th century is that the that the laity would understand that by faith they're justified for the sake of Christ the crucified. And so this is this is what the Book of Concord really at at center is about. I mean, it's about the gospel <laughs> and then the manner in which uh, the gospel can be affected negatively or positively by various false practices or false um, or false doctrine and so forth. So having having that kind of assurance that at least at root, that's what the Book of Concord is about, not just all these high-flown theological concepts. But maybe a place to start would be something like, you know, maybe even the small called articles before you get into the Augsburg Confession, you know, because they're shorter, right? Um, and Luther, some, in some ways, is easier to read uh, just because of his, I mean, he's a little bit more of a practical man, you know, and not so this way, like Chemnitz or or uh, or Melanchthon, but sure. so the small called articles or also the large catechism. I mean, the large catechism really should be our our daily meat that we just make sure that we're reading on a regular basis and continuing to imbibe it. Um, but not to despise these things and to think less of them. And and Luther makes that appeal especially to pastors. You know, the would be wise, right? The lazy bellies. <laughs> so it's yeah. like 
give give the book to your people. Like, what are you waiting for? Um, they they need it, right? As much as you need it as their pastor. So that would be, you know, if if it's if a study's not happening like that in a congregation, maybe a layman, you know, uh, asks his pastor, "Hey, can we start doing this? Uh, can we read the Book of Concord together?" And if he's got a pastor worth his salt, he's not going to be like, "Oh my goodness, not this again!" You know, he's going to say, oh, "I've been waiting for somebody to ask me to do this." You know, yeah. Uh, so, so that, that sort of a thing, but then just to, to get into it, to create a, a habit or a discipline whereby you're imbibing a little bit at time every day, you know? Um, Great. Well, pastor, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate you uh, carving out some time to have this conversation. Uh, we're going to leave it right there for the sake of our time constraints on this show, but uh, we'll have you back on for some more. This has been really helpful. I uh, would love to, you had mentioned uh, Joshua Shooping. Uh, yeah. his book and i'd love to check that out maybe even have him on the show so we'll uh, follow up with that too can i make one a couple book recommendations really yes quick? oh yes please i um actually that was cool. on my list to ask you if you had any other resources that we could take a look at well if, if people are interested if people are interested in looking into kind of the historic correspondence between the lutherans and the orthodox there is a book um i don't know how to say his greek last name so i'll just call him george but the book is called uh <laughs> augsburg and constantinople the correspondence between the two begin theologians and Patriarch Jeremiah, two of Constantinople. And there are a series of fairly lengthy correspondences between the two begin theologians, the primary author of which was Jakob Andrei, who also contributed to the formula of Concord. So no minor figure okay. and Patriarch Jeremiah's too. And they sent, they translated the Augsburg confession into Greek and they sent it to him. And then they had these series of correspondence on things that they disagreed about. And that at least can help people begin to see, okay, where, where is like the dividing point between the Lutherans and the Orthodox? It's probably not so dissimilar to our dividing points with Rome, you know, the papacy or whatever, yeah. notwithstanding. Um, so that would be a good work if anybody's interested in just like, okay, how did the historic Lutherans interact with some of these Orthodox doctrines? That, what else you got? Uh, the, the one for, again, the kind of historic treatment of some of the Roman positions would be Martin Chemnitz's examination of the Council of Trent. That's a little bit more of a hefty four volume work that you're going to get nickel and dimed to buy, <laughs> but maybe your pastor has a copy that he can make some copies of pages. Um, so that, that's a help, that's a helpful work. Um, but then again, to, to find, you know, to spend, I think most of your time, at least developing a better sense of what your own confession is like, don't be overcome by apologists in other Christian denominations, you know, because of your ignorance. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you probably shouldn't even engage with that material until you're, you're ready to think through the concepts because you've, you've actually spent some time considering your own confession, but if people are interested or, you know, there are other, we, I, I can send some other things to you that you can maybe put in your show notes. Yeah. In we'll put them in the show notes. Would, would you please, that'd be great. Yeah. Like the, the Philaret catechism is a, is a Russian Orthodox, I think catechism from like the 20th century, or the 18th century. And that's kind of question and answer. And that's for, you know, an Orthodox audience. So it at least give you an idea of, what are some of their positions on various issues with tradition and other things super like that? Helpful, so. Super helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you, brother. I really appreciate the time. I know you're, uh, you're busy out there in, in Hayden, Idaho. So uh, please yeah. greet the, the saints there on behalf of uh, KFUO and e even St. Mark here from Ferndale. Let us let them know we're, uh, we're thankful for you and your time and your faithful witness there in Hayden. Keep up the yeah, good fight. Well, yeah. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. Thanks. 
Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. What a blessing to hear from Reverend Williams on this topic. Now go take a look at his videos over on YouTube. He's there at Marcus Williams 7448 because I didn't get the memo that you're supposed to use four numbers after your name. And I hope that Kevin Bolton 9315, I hope that you took note of what the good reverend's points were. If not, maybe Martin Kemnitz from his examination of the Council of Trent will prove to be of some further assistance to you, my friend. In in that work, which Reverend Williams mentioned, Kemnitz distinguishes eight, count them, eight varieties of tradition. Now, I'm going to give them to you, as I'm familiar with them, from a footnote in a different volume from Concordia Publishing House, one called The Doctrine of Man in the Writings of Martin Kimnitz and Johann Gerhard. And the note is written up by Edmund Smits. So here we go. Eight varieties of tradition. First, and underivatively authoritative, are the traditions which Christ and the apostles delivered by living voice and which were later set down by the apostles and the evangelists in the scriptures themselves. And a second kind of tradition is the transmission of the Holy Scriptures by the church, joining the writings into a proper order, into the canon, and then preserving them faithfully for posterity. Third, this class is of immediate summary of the scriptural thought and expression that we find in the creedal statements, the creeds, yeah? Most prominently, we see it in the baptismal creed, the Apostles' Creed. The fourth form of traditional testimony concerns the proper exposition of the scriptures. For this purpose, we we do well to remember that scripture interprets scripture, that hermeneutical principle. You want to find, you should begin with choosing passages which are truly clear and unambiguous and proceed from there to the other texts where the discovery and formulation of the proper sense can be more difficult we get the Apostles' Creed based on scriptural teaching. We get this sort of thing. We can start seeing how the economy, the traditions are working themselves out down the line. So the fifth kind of tradition belongs to those dogmas, those doctrines, which are not expressly, explicitly expressed in the words of scripture, but which are deduced from rational inference from the scriptural witness. Within this group, we see that there are some ancient teachings which are implicit in the biblical text, such as, for example, the dogma of the Son being of the same essence, homoousius, with the Father. This is the whole thing that was going on with the Arian heresy, yeah? Okay, which is a reference to what Reverend Williams had to say about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You can't throw Athanasius out when you're throwing out Arius, and just like with that, we don't throw out Luther when we throw out the crazy ELCA people doing sparkle creeds. The sixth set of traditions are the testimonies of the church fathers themselves, which we give profound respect to when they align with Scripture. Seventh are the liturgical traditions, 
which have not been delivered in writing and which are not doctrine in the proper sense of the term. And although they, they solicit respect as ancient and beneficent usages of the church, they are not binding upon us. We are free in the gospel in this regard. And then finally, the eighth variety of traditions includes all those which are not only lacking in any basis in Scripture, but in fact run contrary to it, are antithetical to it. The contra-scriptural traditions, the anti-scriptural traditions, are merely the expressions of human subjectivity, human personal thoughts and views and opinions. They, are, they, they arise often out of the lapses of good men, we read. So they can, have, they can be good men, but with a bad thought. We throw out the bad thought. You don't have to throw out the bad man. You don't have to tear down statues just because the, this guy did something bad or said something bad. They also can come from the tricks of evil men. Unfortunately, a great number of such groundless traditions are found in the Roman Catholic Church. They, they've become enjoined in that denomination as a result of the time when the Council of Trent ordered that church, that, that the, the Roman Catholic Church, was to honor these, these bad teachings with the same reverence as the scriptures themselves. Okay, so to recap, <laughs> I know that was a, there was a lot to take in there, but to recap, we have eight varieties of traditions, and they are as follows. One, the Holy Scriptures. Two, the transmissions of the Holy Scriptures by the church. Three, the creeds. Four, the proper exposition of the Holy Scriptures. Five, rational inference from the scriptural witness. Six, the testimonies of the church fathers. Seven, liturgical traditions. And eight, contra-scriptural traditions. So Kevin Bolton, 9315. Do you see how you're arguing for us to consider the eighth category as if it were somewhere up by the first or the second category. I hope that that's pretty clear. I'd like to say more, but we're keeping an eye on the clock, and given that I just mentioned the tricks of evil men, it seems like a good time, a really, really good time for our canceled Christian comment. This is a segment that I used to make videos of specifically just on my YouTube channel, but we might as well incorporate them here on Cross Defense. And let's see if we can get enough momentum to do this weekly. We'll find a bit of something in the news to comment on, and I'll probably give it a Christian comment that will probably get it canceled by the world. That's okay. I've been canceled before, and I'm still here, or they tried to cancel me before. We're still here. So the first ever canceled Christian comment in Cross Defense. This segment is based on last week's remarks from Vice President Kamala Harris. And so as we face this crisis, as we are clear-eyed about the harm, let us also understand who is responsible, shall we? The former president handpicked three Supreme Court justices because he intended for them to overturn Roe. He intended for them 
to take your freedoms. And it is a decision he brags about. A couple weeks ago, he said that for years, quote, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, but he said, quote, I did it and I'm proud to have done it. Proud? Proud? Proud that women across our nation are suffering? Proud that women have been robbed of a fundamental freedom? Proud that doctors could be thrown in prison for caring for their patients? That young women today have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers? How dare he? That was the American vice president, and this is a canceled Christian comment. How dare he, how dare he, how dare an American president be proud of taking part in playing a crucial role in bringing to an end our national sin of child sacrifice? How dare he boast about sending the legal fight of the murder of defenseless children to the states where the people have a louder voice with their lesser magistrates? He is proud and perhaps a little too proud, but the point is we all should be proud of the things that have our vice president's panties in a bunch. Yes, proud that more women, and I would add their male lovers too, can experience a little more suffering in their life, especially if that suffering is really what we used to call being responsible. Is it suffering to lie in the bed that you've made or unmade as the situation may be? I'm all for pampering our wives, but when a coddled American woman lusts, after lovers whose members are like those of donkeys and whose issue is like that of horses, to borrow the potent words of Ezekiel 23:20, well then, bring on the suffering, friend, for this is the loving disposition, isn't it? Or do we not hold to what the Holy Spirit inspired St. Paul to write in Romans 5? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. If you ask me, Americans could use a little more suffering in our lives. Maybe then, finally, we'll repent and turn back to God. And we should all be proud that women have been robbed of a fabricated fundamental freedom because, well, it is a fabricated freedom constructed on the bones of dead babies. It's indeed a point of pride to be alive today, I would say, when young women have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers, as the vice president said. Mom and grandma were given the legal protection to abuse their children to death. The rejection of their motherly vocation is anti-Christian, serving self over neighbor. Fifty years of protecting the wrongdoer at the expense of the innocent party does not a fundamental freedom make. It's right there in the word fundamental, central, essential, vital, ultimate, major, necessary, basic, primary, original. Abortion doesn't fit that bill, does it? But guess what does? Life. Life is a central right, an essential right, vital, ultimate, major, necessary, basic, primary, an original right because without life, <laughs> need I say more? So yes, we all should be unequivocally proud that doctors could be thrown into prison for murdering their patients. Would that every state was governed according to Romans 13, where criminal doctors who do wrong would have to be afraid of the ruler's sword. Would that all magistrates recognized they were God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And with that, we should wrap up the show, my friends. It is a pleasure to be here with you every Saturday and, or whenever you tune in on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoy this show, if this is something that brings value to your life, that edifies you, that blesses you, 
Would you please consider liking it on your favorite podcast platform, leaving a five-star review, writing out a review if that's something that tickles your fancy, and sharing it with a friend or family member of yours, even by word of mouth. Just tell them, have you heard about Cross Defense? Have you heard about the show that Reverend Tyrell Bramwell's hosting? And uh, you can even tell them about the Cancel Christian Comments or uh, Reverend Williams' interview. Whatever jumped out at you this episode, let them know you liked it. We depend on you. You know that here at KFUO. We are listener-supported. We are church-supported. We need your help to make this service to our neighbors available, and that goes for this particular podcast as well. So thank you for partnering with me in the spreading of the gospel. Christ truly is for you, and he truly is for you anytime, anywhere. And we want to make that known right here, right now, on this platform. Thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate you writing in. You can do so by going to tyrellbramwell.com slash contact. That's T-Y-R-E-L-B-R-A-M-W-E-L-L at dot com slash contact. You can also find me on YouTube or on Instagram. I'm there as well. I might be uh, opening up some other social accounts. I really want to, in 2024, get more cross-defense content out to you been a blessing here at St. Mark's. I know all the people are growing and learning as they listen to this platform and as they're exposed to more and more Lutheranism through KFUO, and I want that to be true as well. Thank you, my friends. Christ be with you, my friends. God bless you, and I'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.